Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Wes McAdams. Here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I want to start today by reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin— He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Today, we're going to talk about Romans chapter 8 with my friend Mitch Wiggins. Mitch is the preaching minister at the Western Heights Church of Christ in Sherman, Texas. He and his wife, Katie, have three daughters, and he is a good friend of mine. And I know that you will appreciate his thoughts on Romans chapter 8. And I hope that this conversation will help all of us learn to love like Jesus. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Well, thanks for having me, Wes. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I've been listening to some of your sermons, and I've been really enjoying it. One of my favorite chapters, I know I'm not the only one that this is one of their favorite chapters of the Bible, but definitely one of my favorites. And for those that listen to the podcast a lot, they'll know that uh, it's one that I frequently reference. So I'm excited to talk about it with you, and I was really excited to listen to it. But why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, tell us about what you've been preaching? So I've been focusing uh, the past several weeks in the in the book of Romans, specifically in Romans chapter 8. And again, yes, you're right. Uh, this has been one of the considered one of the biggest and, and most impactful chapters in all of scripture. Many scholars throughout history have said right here this is this is the passage. This is the section of scripture that really contains Every theological movement uh, in all of Scripture is somehow referenced or at least implied in that one short, well, it's not short, but one chapter. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a favorite and it's delightful to go through. Yeah. Well, there's so much. You 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 said so many wonderful things. I, there's no way I'm going to be able to get to all of the notes that I have uh, from the three sermons that I listened to. I, I'm tempted to start with what I think was probably your most recent one. Your most recent one was on hope. Yes. I, I, I won't start there. That's my favorite place to, to talk <laughs> about is that sort of eschatological hope that we have. But, but let's go back maybe uh, to the one unshakable life. Uh, you talked about I, I love this idea that too many of us accept his death, talking about the death of Jesus, too many of us accept his death, but shun his life. And you ask the question, how can someone claim to be a Christian, and yet there is no visible evidence that their life has been in any way affected by that claim? Talk us through that for just a second, if you would. All right. So, yeah, that is that is a mystery to people of faith in, in all reality, people who have genuinely held the faith and, and internalized the faith, hmm. is we recognize there's a change that has happened and that needs to happen because my life does not look the same as it used to. Now, granted, I grew up in the church and I grew up with godly parents and godly fam- family, um, wonderful godly influences. But even with all of that, it's it's an understanding that I have a propensity towards sin mm. and I have desires towards sin and left to my own devices, I'm going to head in that direction. But whenever I fully embrace and have the spirit of God within me, then um, that really does change things. And it's some, it may just be an understanding of conscience as long as my conscience isn't seared. Um, but this, this idea that so many people are willing to say, I want Jesus as savior. I want him to save me from my sins so I don't go to hell, so I don't end up in that. I, I want to go to heaven. I want, like I've heard the preacher talk about how glorious that might be. I want to go there. We want Jesus a savior, but another way of saying this is 
we're not sure we want him as our Lord. Mm. We don't want him to get into our business of day-to-day affairs. We just want him to affect our eternity. And that's not, that's not what Jesus asks us, uh, asks of us even. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you did a, an amazing job of pointing out that while there has to be that transformation, that it is not it is not us saving ourselves by transforming ourselves. We're not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're not transforming ourselves and changing ourselves to be more and more like Jesus. But it is evidence. In fact, you said it something like this. You said, when you, when you say no to sin, it's not helping your salvation. It's evidence that you are saved. And I think so often we we get that, you know, backwards and, and that, and really a lot of this begins with the idea that there is no condemnation. I, I know you, you preached an earlier lesson that I didn't get to hear on no condemnation in Christ, but, but so much of it flows from that, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think that sometimes we think that, that this, if we're going to keep people obedient and get them to do the right thing and act like Jesus and and be good Christian people, then we have to sort of scare them with condemnation. We have to scare them with, if you don't get your act together, then then you're going to be lost, rather than understanding that right obedience, right living is the evidence that the grace of God has transformed us and the Spirit of God is living in us and that it's Him doing that work internally and manifesting itself in our behavior rather than the other way around. Agreed. And that's, um, you know, that's kind of a common rhetoric that I will tell my congregation over and over, something to the form of, uh, we don't do these things, whether it be you know, these acts of worship or whether it be the do's and don'ts that we sometimes will proclaim, we don't do them in order to be saved um, because we can't add into our salvation, um, not not at least into our uh, justification, that's for sure. Um, but we do them because we're saved. And so the understanding of justification, sanctification, and glorification, the three aspects of what we squish down into one word called salvation, mm. has been one of the most transformative things to me, and I see it over and over in Romans 8, is that there's an understanding of justification. Verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. And way too many people live in the place of saying, well, I hope I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope I've done enough good. And, and the thing is, if there's no condemnation, then your enough doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you have not done good enough. You are not good enough. Uh, you can't do it on your own. So justification is a huge part of understanding. I am justified. There is now no condemnation. And we can get into some questionable, like some, some, may, some did ask me after I, after I preached on that of saying, are you saying that, you know, the once saved, always saved? Like, not as you might typically think. But if that's the question that you're asking, then you're hearing me correctly. Is if there is no condemnation, that means no. Um, and if we could just sit in that and understand that, then when we come to sanctification, our our daily living in the life in the spirit, uh, that spirit indwelling life, that sanctification will have new purpose and meaning uh, because we understand we've already been justified. So walk me through that. I'm, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. That that okay. that answer is kind of interesting. So I, I walk me through that conversation where where somebody asked you because I wondered about that that idea of you know did he get pushback? You know, were there people wondering are you are you sort of promoting a you know kind of a, a Baptist theology or a, a Calvinist theology that says you know once you're saved you can't lose your salvation? Um, and, and so you said you said if if that. Walk me through exactly how you responded to that again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it is uh, it is difficult ground because uh, we have made our um, we've drawn our lines in the sand between the Baptist or the Calvinist or mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, any time that we start saying anything that sounds remotely like them, people question and and rightfully so. I think that's wonderful. Whenever we have congregations and people in the the congregations that are questioning. Uh, what the preacher says and said, and, and are like, what are you, what does that really mean? Um, but the, the thought is, 
if we really take the no condemnation seriously, then, and, and if Paul's very clear about it in verse one, at the very end, he says, there's now, there's no separation for, uh, no separation with Christ. The only way we can have no separation is if there is no chance of condemnation to those who are in Christ. Hmm. And, and so walking through that, it can sound a little bit like, well, if someone fell away, then they must never have had uh, Christ in their life. I'm not sure that if that's the case. Hmm. Um, because even in Romans eight, Paul will even get into more of the um, the question of of what sin does and, and uh, just the just the problems with that. But a lot of times, that's where I'm saying the line between justification, sanctification, and glorification is really important for my explaining this and understanding it. So just to kind of dumb that down, justification is a one time event. And that's, that's an event that I can't do on my own. It's a, what God has, well, all of these I can't do on my own. It's what God is doing. It's all parts of salvation. But justification is what he does saying, I am now justified. I am a child of God. I am his son. I can cry out, Abba, Father, with the help of the Spirit. Um, these are all things that are my right because of what he has done. Skip over to glorification. That's the part of salvation that I'm waiting for still. Mm -hmm. I have been justified. Glorification is whenever I get to enjoy the fullness of the rewards. We might talk about this in saying, I'm in heaven. I'm in the presence of Jesus always. I, all those pictures that come to mind with glorification, that's it. So in the middle ground, which is the rest of my life, is sanctification. And it's the daily renewal of looking more and more like Christ. Mm -hmm. And so some might say that that is striving. And, and the problem is we, we might lean upon grace for justification, but a line that I used in one of the sermons was we often head towards grit for sanctification. We mm -hmm. think that somehow we have to earn our sanctification. And the issue is it's actually a, it's a partnership. Uh, whenever we think about it, it's a partnership between what God is doing in me and what I'm responding uh, toward God with. I don't know if that fully oh, answered so your question, but maybe yeah. that'll. <laughs> no, it's so good, and I and I think I think you're exactly right. I think that there's so much there's so much beauty and 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 depth here that when we when you oversimplify any area of scripture, when you oversimplify salvation, when you oversimplify apostasy, whatever it is, and you oversimplify that, then anytime someone starts to to touch on the nuances or to go a little bit further explaining this area or that area, it makes some people really uncomfortable. And I think for so long, we have, so many of us have drilled down so hard on obedience and, you know, with good reason, but at the same time, drilling down on obedience with the understanding that, that you, you, you're probably going to be lost or giving the impression that a person is probably going to be lost and, and not ever allowed anyone to rest in this beautiful, wonderful work that God has done for us, that as long as we remain in Christ, and yes, is it possible to no longer be in Christ, to walk away from Jesus? Of course, I think it's possible to walk away from Jesus, but as long as you remain in Christ, there is no condemnation. I, I, I think this analogy can be stretched too far, but uh, since the Rangers won the World Series the other day, I've been using it as much as I could. But uh, <laughs> but my wife is a, is a huge Rangers fan. I'm a moderate Rangers fan. But people have been congratulating her on the Rangers win. And I joked Sunday from the pulpit, I said, you know, y'all realize like she never went to spring training. She never played a single game. She wasn't actually yeah. on the Rangers team. So I'm not sure why you're congratulating her. But the truth is, you really do congratulate the fans because they are in the team right? and they were not the ones on the field. They didn't do the work, but the, the victory belongs to them because it belongs to the one who won it on their behalf. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, victory is ours. I don't have to do the work. Jesus did the work. He, he, yeah. he bought this for me. He purchased this for me. So as long as I remain in him, the victory is mine. Now, Again, just like with the Rangers, it's possible to walk away and to say, 
I'm, I don't trust in them. I don't believe in them. I'm not going to follow them. I'm not going to do their thing. I'm not going to wear their clothes. I'm not going to live that life and walk away. And then you forfeit the victory. But as long as you right. remain in Christ, the victory is yours. And there is no, well, you did this much, but you didn't do quite that much. And so many people, and I mean, I don't know another minister, I'm sure you've had this experience. Every minister I know, we've we've sat with elderly Christian people at the end of their life, wondering if they're lost because they, quote, haven't done enough. And just right. like you said a minute ago, I tell people all the time, of course you haven't done enough. You haven't done enough. Jesus has, though, and you're saved not because whether or not you've done enough, but because of the, the good that he's done for you. So thank you for preaching that message of there is no condemnation in Christ and helping us to, to realize that that truth and reality leads to our obedience and transformation. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just preaching the word with that. And, and, and the now uh, is a is a big word for me. And I didn't realize how big it was until I was preaching through it on this this time uh, was there is now no condemnation. I had it in my head. Well, yeah, that's talking about a future thing, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. condemnation is is a thing to do with glorification. But whenever he says now, and it's clearly, I mean, that Greek word is talking about the present tense, current situation. There is now no condemnation. It kind of makes you just rest in the Lord a little bit more. That mm -hmm. peace that passes understanding that we often talk about is, it's tangible. It's there. Amen. Well, the next lesson I listened to was your, your lesson on unshakable inheritance. The idea of the Holy Spirit being in us to testify and give evidence to the fact that we are God's children. And I love the, I love your, your metaphor or your analogy. You said, there's no such thing as an accidental adoption. You said, there's, <laughs> there's such a thing as an accidental pregnancy, but not an accidental adoption. That right. if you adopt a child, you are doing this on purpose. You are doing this intentionally and that God has adopted us as his children. And it wasn't an accident. We belong to him. Talk through that for a second, if you would. Yeah. So the, the, the idea that, I mean, we all get, we've seen, we've heard, and, and often with some, sometimes with shame and just often with surprise, the accidental pregnancy idea. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, yeah, it does happen. We didn't intend for it to happen. We weren't planning for this, whether it's in a marriage or even not. Uh, those are, we hear those stories, but it does sound kind of silly talking about an accidental adoption because there is no such thing. Um, it takes time. It takes work. I'm not someone who is experienced in it. I, I have not adopted a family myself, and it, I, I'm not necessarily directly connected to it, but I know the stories of those who have. It's a long process. It's mm -hmm. costly. And you have to, like, you are making a choice. You know, I, if given a lineup, I would choose my girls to be in my family again. You know, like, if I had the ability to choose, I would choose them again. Um, but the thing is, adoption is looking at that and saying, I can see you with all your warts and all your problems and all the graces and beauties that you have. And despite the problems and sometimes despite the good things that you have currently that may not always be good, I'm still going to choose you. And I'm going to choose you forever. Hmm. And that knowing that God has done that for us um, willingly, that he uh, knows us and knows our propensity for sin. He knows our rebellion. He knows the human story is that we're going to turn our back on him more often than we would care to admit, but especially as, as a father, um, as God, the father that he would want us to yet he still chooses. And that, that is a powerful message. Uh, no doubt. Yeah. When you said, and I love the way, and again, you, you have such a, a wonderful ability when you preach to, to bring it to something practical, to a practical concept, a practical idea, uh, both in the things that we need to change in the way that we're thinking, but also in how we're living, that, that this should lead to a transformed life. This should lead to something new, a new way of, of doing life. And you said, God doesn't want the dutiful obedience of a bunch of slaves. He wants the love of his children. 
why do you think that that is a different kind of obedience that that the difference between the obedience of of slavery versus the obedience of of childhood how have you seen that that lived out in in real life sometimes i guess maybe well the the obedience of slavery is what if if we're going to be honest with or at least maybe if i'm going to be honest with a lot of my upbringing with the teachers that I've had, and even how I may have even started in the ministry, I wanted to not just encourage, but I, I don't know, like implore, but I really wanted to force Christians to do or don't do certain things that I want to recreate, not just the 10 commandments, but the 613 commandments from the old Testament in our modern context, in, in light of the new Testament, um, there is a part of me that thinks it would be easier to say, well, here's all the things to do and here's all the things not to do. And so do all these and don't do all those. And the thing that I realize is I can do checkmark mentality. I can do checkmark salvation ideas and never have my heart in it. Hmm. I can go through motions. I can do all those things. And if my heart's not in it, that's problematic because God is looking at the heart. In fact, that's where... Um, my sermon this coming Sunday is uh, right there in Romans 8, uh, 27. I'd have to look it up now that I say that. Um, yeah. And the Father who knows our, all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. And, and so the song, Listen to Our Hearts, that our heart needs to be in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that to me is what it looks like then to be a child is that as a child of God, even as, as a child of my parents, I didn't do everything right. I didn't do everything according to their will and plan, but I never wanted to dishonor their name. Hmm. And I always wanted to please them. And now part of that may be personality, but I think it proves some of the point of saying, because my kids do the same thing with me. They don't want to disappoint their dad. That's a different way of living um, that I hope makes it makes the transition to not just they're not doing this because they don't want to disappoint their dad. It's more so that they come to it and say, this is because I love and I am loved. And in the relationship of love, um, we look at it just within marriage. In the relationship of love with my wife, there are certain things that I'm not going to do. It doesn't mean that those things are wrong. It's just I love my wife too much to even venture toward that kind of path. And I know I have her love. And I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. If we understand yeah. our relationship of, with God as being one of love, as a family love, rather than a dutiful servant or slave, then it really does. We may do a lot of the same things, but it changes the why, the mm -hmm. why we do those. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Because it's so much, you know, going back to that idea where you said that it's almost easier to think of things as a checklist, and and I I'm a checklist person. I I sometimes joke that that I will write things down on my to do list that I've already done just for the joy of checking it off afterwards. I, I love I love a list, um, and and I grew up thinking of religion as a list, as yeah. five acts and five steps and things to to check off of a list, because that way you know you've done it, you know you've accomplished it, you know that you've won the race, you know you 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 know that you've accomplished these things, but so much of the way we're told to live in the New Testament is not quantifiable the the things we're told to do love your neighbor like at what point can you say it's kind of the the whole the whole impetus behind the question of who's my neighbor that Jesus tells the the story of the good samaritan in response to because if somebody says have you loved your neighbor well well, what does that require of me? You know, what, how, when do I get to say I've checked that off the list? The answer is never. <laughs> you, right. you just continue to love, you know, and, and you understand that when you're in a, in a marriage or in a parenting child relationship, you don't say, well, listen, I can do whatever I want to as long as you haven't explicitly told me not to do these things, or I can I don't have to do any of these things of, of kindness or love or generosity because you never specifically told me I had to do them. That's the way an employee operates or the way that right. a slave operates, not the way a, a person who has been brought into the family. And I love the emphasis there in Romans 8 and so much of Paul's 
language throughout all of his epistles is the language of inheritance. That right. what I often say is that everything that belongs to Jesus by nature and by merit, because of who he is and what he's done, belongs to us by grace, which is phenomenal that we are co-heirs right. with Jesus, that we get to inherit everything that belongs to him is going to be shared with us. And you made that point in your sermon so well that God sent his son to die for a mess that we made in order to adopt us as his children. That's phenomenal in order to give us an inheritance. And you're so right. That really should change the way we live our lives. Yeah, I agree that that I mean, I wish that was it was that simple in people's minds. of just mm -hmm. like if you totally internalize that, it, that's enough. To know that the God of the universe died in your place for the mess that you are, you know, not, not because, well, he'll turn out good someday. Mm. No, he came to save us in our mess so that he could walk with us through it all mm -hmm. so that we could be family. And yeah, the, the family aspect, uh, being adopted into this family co-heirs of Christ, uh, verse 17, man, that is a... That's powerful because whenever we look at Christ and well, yeah, everything's his, um, you know, I didn't, one of the, I didn't use this in the sermon, but one of the thoughts I'm a Disney uh, fan, well, old school Disney fan for sure. Uh, the Lion King, mm. you know, and so Mufasa taking Simba up there and say, everything the light touches is yours. And it's just this big old picture. Well, that's what comes to mind whenever I hear co-heirs with Christ is like, mm. Christ is everything. And then he looks at us and says, well, this is yours too. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. You can't not be moved by that, I think. Yeah. Well, you're so right. And 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 that is a good segue to the the lesson you brought last week about the unshakable hope. And and again, you you tied this into the practicalities that it's not just this pie in the sky idea about what is to come, but that both ourselves and the creation, this is Paul's whole language, is, is groaning that we are anticipating something better, that we, and I love the way that you contrasted the idea of groaning with the idea of whining. What was the other one that you used? Whining and... Uh, and griping. Actually, and I griping, tried to combine yes. the two and it didn't work. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, but we are groaning because... We do hurt and we are in pain, but something better is coming. And the whole creation is groaning along with us in anticipation of, of something better. Yeah. So just, just if, you know, someone doesn't go and listen to the sermon, which is totally fine, just to they give should. the definitions. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> but the definitions that I used, uh, griping is to complain about something in a persistent, irritating way. Whining is to make a long, high-pitched, complaining cry or sound. And the point that I made is both of those are about complaining. But notice groaning is to make a deep, inarticulate sound in response to pain. And so I love just looking at the definitions that griping and whining are complaining, but groaning is responding. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, gives, gives reason and, and also gives permission to groan mm -hmm. um, because it's it's an appropriate response to the ache of this life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so, so wonderful. And I I I I don't know because I, I had a certain idea eschatologically of what what is going to happen when Jesus comes that that has changed a lot over the years. And because it's changed a lot over the years, going back to some of those passages like this one that teaches a more robust definition to the word even salvation. You you pointed out so well that salvation is not just this individualistic thing where it's, I get saved so that I can go be with God away from everyone else and away from everything else. That salvation is about God restoring all things. That's what the book of Acts says, that, that there is there is coming a day of restoration that God is going to redeem creation. And what that did, in a, it did a number of things, but one of the things was that it allowed me to appreciate all of Scripture more, because I think there were passages like Romans 8, especially this part about the creation groaning and the redemption of creation, and I would just kind of, 
I, I like to say, you know, practice the Passover. I would just pass right over it. I was like, I don't know what that means. Seems right. kind of weird. And I would just kind of skip over it. But you, you, you miss out on, you lose so much hope. You lose so much hope of your own inheritance. It's like if somebody, you know, if you had a lawyer come to your house and say this relative left you this gigantic inheritance and you said, well, listen, that's really complicated. You know, I don't really understand all that stuff. Just please don't bother me with all of that. It sounds complicated. I don't know how inheritances work. No, you wouldn't say that. You would say, right. tell me more. Tell me everything there is to know about that. Right. I think that we should be the same way with our own inheritance. Because again, as you said, it it changes our life when we understand that inheritance. Agreed. And and that's, if we understand, again, fast forward to the book of Revelation and, and what's going to happen there is, you know, in the end, there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, hmm. and then tie in a little bit more in uh, Thessalonians and others, a new body for this person, for Mitch Wiggins and for all believers, a new, like all this new stuff. And the point is, all of those things are decaying because of sin. This is back to Genesis because sin entered the world. Creation is subject, uh, subjected to human sin. Creation didn't choose to sin but it is part of the fallout of our sin. And yet creation, it seems, doesn't hold it against us. Mm. It just longs for the things to be set right. And I, I find great uh, redemptive power in that, especially uh, the, the idea that sometimes I may want to hold things against someone else that have they've done me wrong. And then every once in a while, in those moments, I look at a rock and go, well, I've cursed this rock, but this mm. rock isn't cursing me. Um, and it's just waiting for me to do my job so that, so that, as Roman says, it will all, it will all be uh, transformed the way that it should be. And so it really takes the picture off of an individual salvation or even the individual implications of sin. Mm -hmm. Saying, well, my sin only affects me. No, it doesn't. Right. It affects your family. It affects the next generation. It affects your neighbors. Um, it affects creation all of it. And that's yeah. whenever we realize that we begin to really see the, the bigness that that's, mm -hmm. you know, wonderful preacher word there, but the bigness of salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the idea that you said at the end of your sermon there, that death and decay will not get the last word. Yeah. And I love that. And, and what a word of hope that is, whether we're we're just groaning with the way our body is hurting or the way sin is affecting us our own sin or someone else's sin or because you know somebody that we love has died and we're grieving we know that death and decay won't have the last word but i think that the way that you preach that the way that paul presents it it allows us to acknowledge it allows us to acknowledge the pain and you pointed that out that so often we try to uh, what did you say fake the ache you know we yeah. we try to uh, pretend like it's not there we deny that it's there uh, and I think that we have to, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we have to allow people to lament. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. It's only when you weep that God can wipe away your tears. And, and sometimes we don't allow people to groan. We don't allow people to lament and mourn. And, and we try to just tell everyone to put on a happy face, but that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope allows us to hold joy in one hand and pain in the other because we know that it won't always be this way. That's right. And Paul's illustration, and I mentioned this in the sermon, is about uh, childbirth, mm. is this intense pain, um, but it's only temporary. Mm -hmm. And when it passes, that's probably a horrible way of talking about um childbirth, but when the pain uh, it is relieved, it is fulfilled with a joy that is almost as undescribable as the pain uh, that was previous. And, and so that idea is, hey, we've got, we've got to be able to let people groan well. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think we need to be holding people accountable for when they're just complaining. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference, but when we groan well, we are joining in the, the course of all creation of groaning, uh, waiting for the Messiah to return and set things right. Mm -hmm. 
The reason we complain even is because we don't think something's right. Well, if we change our complaining into godly groaning, it not only blesses our, our life in our situation because we then are connected to the hope that it's not always going to be this way and that God is eternal and he's the king over all of it, but it also affects those around us because they get to hear and witness how we can walk through some of the hardest things of our lives and still have hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why the, you know, the elderly sister or brother that uh, has walking through cancer, they don't have to be older, but the ones that do it well, everyone notices. Yeah. Everyone notices, sees that and goes, wow, that is, how can you do that? And in a word, it's hope. Mm-hmm. It's the only way we can navigate those things. Yeah. Amen. Well, let me kind of shift gears just a little bit, Mitch, and, and ask what what made you want to teach this? This is I, I love the idea of doing a whole series in Romans eight, uh, but what what made you want to dig into it that way? <laughs> well, it's honestly for that reason. Uh, so I've been preaching now thirteen years consistently, and uh, as I was looking back at all the series that I've done. I had yet to do one just in Romans 8. Hmm. I've referenced so many things from that chapter in so many sermons, probably in numerous ways, but I'd never just said, I'm going to stick to Romans 8 and talk through that. And it kind of floored me because I was like, seriously, like this is a great chapter and I've never done this. So that's part of it, uh, you know, and, and also it's in the other side of it is there's those conversations with members and just with people in general that we live in a world that is lacking hope. We live in a world that is not asking the right kind of questions. It's getting, getting hamstrung on moving forward with anything, it seems. And so to be able to just read a passage that is just drenched in hope and assurance and life is gives us the same. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, have there been any passages within the chapter that you've focused special attention or come back to frequently? Uh, things that, that have given a sort of a lens through which to see other parts of the chapter? So I've mentioned it earlier, but I do go back to the beginning and end. I do think how I, I know the chapters are a later edition um, but I do think that the, the rabbis, whoever added this, whenever they did, uh, they, they have a pretty good connection of Romans eight, a uh, pretty good start and finish. So I look at the start verse and then kind of the finish idea, and we love to head to that, that finisher. I mean, there is no separation for those, uh, you know, and it's neither life nor death or angels or demons or things above things below, like this whole list of things that cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. And that's, that is wonderful truth. But if that's true, then we reverse that and go back to verse one. The only way that no separation is true is if there is no condemnation. And so I keep on reading everything through Romans eight with that lens of the, of just the assurance, this assurance that we have that nothing can separate me. Because there is nothing, no condemnation, which condemnation is really basically saying, oh, yeah, here's something that can separate you mm-hmm. two times in this chapter. No, you can't. No condemnation, no separation. If you get those truths right, then everything in the middle is going to make a little bit more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Have there have there been other things, other writings outside of Scripture that have been helpful? Any resources that you would recommend outside of Scripture that might be helpful if somebody's studying Romans or studying this oh, chapter boy. in particular? You know, I'm not necessarily going to have anything off the top of my head. I've heard others. Um, oh, who is it that is it reading Romans backwards? You know, I was um, going to ask you if you'd read that. Uh, yeah, I, that, I think that's Scott, Scott McKnight's book. Yes, and I've heard so many good things. So that is one that is on my list to to read. Now that's kind of a broader picture of Romans. Sure. Um, but I, you know, I've kind of jumped around. I haven't laid upon one with this series that I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, this is uh, one that everyone ought to read. I've kind of jumped around to different uh, commentaries and 
and different things. So I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. Yeah, one. no, no, no worries. You know, it's it's amazing how much is there in the text, and and it, I'm that way when it comes to to commentaries. Is I tend to draw from a lot of different ones. I'm not even sure where I've drawn some of the information from. Right. You know, I I tend to have a, a bunch open in front of me. Let me ask you this. This is probably the most important question I like to ask guys about what they're preaching and teaching. How has this study changed you? How have you seen this study um, breathe new life into you or make a transformation in you personally? So this study, uh, I guess another reason I wanted uh, wanted to do this is uh, just got off of doing a series about the tabernacle because our church hosted a thing called this tabernacle experience, a life-size replica of the tabernacle was on our grounds. And it was a lot of work. And that, that series was very uh, heady as it, mm. as it were. Like I, it was, I was making some connections and dots that not everyone's going to see. And it was, it was a joy, but it also was a lot. And so coming into Romans eight, like I'm taking the same kind of passion and same kind of uh, study into it. But what I'm finding more is I'm not having to work at crafting this. Hmm. I'm just being able to preach hmm. this word. And so that has filled my cup as a preacher, because sometimes, I mean, I know you get this. There are some things that you're going to preach that you, you have to work at. You know, you need to say this. And sometimes it's subjects that you're like, I'm going to read this from my, from, you know, my preparation, because I want to say this right. And I don't want to mess this up. Um, but then sometimes it's just, guys, you got it. Like, listen to this. This is amazing. This is what's doing to me. So Romans eight is, is one of those passages that if, if you're not, if you haven't read it in a while, I highly encourage go back and just read it, let it, let it fill you because that's what it's been doing for me. It's just continually filling me. Um, yeah. Some things that I forget are in the, in that one chapter. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's here too. And I'm just going to enjoy that. So yeah. well, I think NT Wright said the other day, I heard him in a video say that, that if he only had one Bible on a desert Island, of course it would be the Bible. And if he only had one book, it would be the book of Romans. And if he only had one chapter from one book, it would be Romans eight. And, and I couldn't yeah. agree more. I, I there's I so the much thing. there. Yeah. yeah. You can, you could teach, you could teach almost, you, you pointed this out in one of your sermons, you could teach almost any new Testament subject by drawing from Romans eight. There's, there's text there uh, to, to sort of briefly explain so many things. And, and he really is pulling from the whole narrative of what God has done for his people and what God is preparing to do for his people. So let me ask you this, Mitch, as you've been preaching this, what have you seen that it has already done, or what are you hoping that it has done in the lives of of the congregation, what do you hope that they're learning intellectually or what do you hope that they're putting into practice in their daily life? So intellect, well, I mean, I really hope they're indwelling this confidence, hmm. um, that this confidence that, that God loves me. And, you know, just as the, we have the children's song, Jesus loves me. I mean, it, we, we make it formative for them, but sometimes we forget that that song is just as powerful for us as adults because he loves us that much loves us that he would give his life for us, loves us so much that he just, he, he wants what's best for us. And he loves us in, in ways that whenever we're dealing with the pain of this life, he's not absent. Um, and so what I hope that people walk away with this, uh, with this whole series is just this, just the simple reality of how much God loves them. And if they can truly internalize that, his love is not just some, oh, yeah, it's a checkmark kind of, he loves me, great. It is whenever I mess up and whenever I I, I walk into that sin that I, I swore I wouldn't go back to that sin. And I think that in that moment, God has doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I hope that this series is just that reminder of saying, wait. But Romans 8, but Romans 8 says, he loves me even in this, mm -hmm. that even in this mess and even in the struggle, he has adopted me. And there's a spirit within me that is saying, hey, look, that's dad, that's Abba, father. And if my dad taught me anything, and if I hope to teach anything to my girls, is that they can come to me with their mess. 
I'm not distant whenever they're in pain. Mm. When they're in pain, I want to be right there. And I'm convinced that God is the same. Or I'm that because God is that maybe is mm. a better way of saying. So. That's good. That's very good. So this is kind of a bonus for those that are listening. It you you said when you when we went back and forth just a little bit earlier, you said um, about by email we were talking about what you were preaching, but you also mentioned a a class that you were doing. And so let's talk about that just briefly before we close. What what's the class that you're doing? Because I got to listen to one of the lessons. Unfortunately, I didn't get to listen to more of that, but it seems incredibly powerful and interesting and something that that. Christians desperately need to understand. Yeah. So the, the boring idea is that um, it is we're talking about hermeneutics, which is really just the study of scripture and how, how we do that. That's and I, I'm co-teaching with our associate minister, Rusty Sherry, and uh, which is, for one, a delightful experience in and of itself. Uh, just co-teaching with someone um, like that is is great. But the whole purpose in this was really we were looking at a lot of the questions that people have about scripture um, or like, I just don't understand this. A lot of people, you know, will throw up their hands and say, well, you know, do the Passover as you were talking about that. Let's just skip that and go on to something else. And, and, or they're coming to some conclusions that uh, they're, they're making assumptions and they don't realize it. Mm -hmm. So what good hermeneutics does is it encourages us with questions uh, questions to ask ourselves, uh, like, what am I bringing into this text? What are my biases? What are my um, preconceived notions? And then questions to ask the text, uh, things about context. What, who is this written to? Who was the writer? What is the time period? Is there anything within um, the ancient world context that, that might be applicable into this situation in this setting? And then you know, looking further at other questions and diving into the, a broader way of studying scripture. And this is something that a lot of people do individually, hmm. but we wanted to take it to a class format of saying, let's do this together. Um, do it as a lot of church history has, is that don't leave Bible study to the professionals. Let's have Bible study together and let's have no other agenda than to just open up this word and study together. And so after a um, kind of a synopsis of walking through, we spend a couple classes saying, okay, here's how maybe traditionally we've done it. Command, example, necessary inference was a predominant hermeneutic among um, the Churches of Christ uh, for a, a while, among other groups, uh, talking about that, what it meant. We then gave a um, another method, uh, another tool in that toolbox of hermeneutics, which John Mark Hicks lays out in his book, Searching for the Pattern. And, uh, you know, it, we take that. And then what we've done now is just said, all right, give us some scriptures that you want us to talk about. Mm. And uh, the, they haven't held back any punches. Um, you know, we've had to deal with Romans 13. Uh, you know, how do we, what does it mean to uh, submit to the government? Uh, what does that look like? We're like, we asked for it, you know. And then First uh, Corinthians 11 is what we're currently in, which is, laced with a bunch of difficult things, but mm -hmm. it's great to study together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one I listened to was on on First Corinthians 11 about head coverings, and, and y'all handled that really well. And I just think that it's so important for us to acknowledge that we're not always consistent with how we've tended to to interpret scripture. Scott, uh, I, we brought up Scott McKnight earlier, but Scott McKnight has another book called Blue Parakeet. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions, but I don't necessarily think he wants you to agree with all of his conclusions. One of the goals of the book is simply to bring out how we pass over certain passages, how we ignore certain passages, how we interpret certain passages in one way and other passages that are, are very similar We'll interpret a totally different way because we don't want to come to the same conclusions. And just being honest with how are we reaching these conclusions and what are some of the tools by which we can reach better conclusions is such an important question. And and even what you said a minute ago, you said people make assumptions and they don't know that they're making them. We all make assumptions, but I think right. the more honest we can be, say, now listen, I'm assuming this is the case, or I'm coming to this text with a bias, or here's what I think the answer might be, or how I tend to read this. 
but I might be wrong. And just in that one class that I heard you and Rusty do, you you both were so honest about those kind of things. And it's refreshing to see preachers to approach the text that way to say, listen, we don't know all of the historical background. We don't know exactly what was going on here, but here are some things that might help us to reach a better conclusion about this passage. Right. And, and honesty. I mean, I think I'm convinced that the more honest we approach scripture, uh, the better off we're going to be. We're, I think that leaves more room for the spirit to work uh, within study. Uh, sometimes we forget that the spirit needs to be involved within study. A lot of times we think it's just our head. Mm -hmm. um, but if the spirit lives within us and is going to convict us of things, which is his job, uh, then he needs to be a part of the, of the whole process. So asking good questions. One of my, one of my favorite questions about what John Mark Hicks brings up is really what he calls step two is this, this kind of broader picture of, uh, Oh, how does he, how does he say it? Um, step two is, is really the normative substance of the text, uh, which is, mm you know, fun way of saying, okay, let's look at the whole council of scripture. Let's look at all of scripture. How does what is being said in this particular passage, how does it fit within Nehemiah? How does it fit within Job? How does it fit within Revelation? Um, part of the answer is, well, it doesn't. It's not really addressing that. But whenever, going back to the Romans 13 about submitting to authority, well, that's a great one to go back and look at Daniel. Daniel, how did he submit to authority? I mean, multiple times he went up against authority, but was willing to suffer the consequences of his challenge. And it worked. I mean, every there's nothing in here that's subservient in David. He is under their authority over in uh, Daniel. He's under their authority over and over and over again. And so, just tying that one passage back to Daniel gives some more uh, depth of understanding mm -hmm. of. Paul isn't just kind of throwing things out there uh, in a vacuum. He's throwing it within a broader story of Scripture, of God's story. And so seeing those connection points um, is really a helpful way for me to study Scripture. Yeah. Amen. Well, Mitch, I've I've known you and your family for a very long time, and I, I have had a long appreciation for everything that you and your family do for the kingdom of God. So thank you for this opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you, but but to thank you for the, the overall work that you're doing, brother. I so appreciate you. Well, Wes, I appreciate this as well, and this has been a great time. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. If you have just a moment, we would love for you to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It really does help people find this content. I also want to thank the guests who join me each week, Travis Pauly, who edits this podcast, Beth Tabor, who often volunteers her time to transcribe it, and our whole McDermott Road Church family who make it possible for us to provide this Bible study for you. Now, let's go out and love like Jesus. Jesus.